I'm Kendra Kruger, and this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, April 7th, 2015. Today, in conjunction with the Conference of World Affairs hosted by CU Boulder, we bring you Margot Farnsworth and a conversation on biomimicry as a new lens for viewing science, technology, and innovation. Biomimicry is a new and old way of solving human challenges by going through the conscious emulation of nature's genius. Stay tuned. So today for our special show in conjunction with the Conference of World Affairs, our guest and panelist for this conversation on biomimicry and technology is Margot Farnsworth. She's worked as a park ranger, science teacher, mammologist with degrees in science education and parks administration. She is recognized with the River Network National River Hero Award and the State Resource Management Award of Excellence and the Friends of Fisheries Award. She was also the Tennessee State Environmental Educator of the Year and received the Freeman Tilden Award for Outstanding Interpretation. She's a speaker, writer, business consultant, and fellow of the Biomimicry Institute. And she joins us now live in the studio. Welcome, Margot. Oh, thank you, Kendra. It's great to be here. So, Margot, as I understand it, biomimicry is a school of thought that teaches finding solutions through observing nature. And I've heard the poignant phrase from Janine Benyus, the founder of the Biomimicry Institute, describe it as the conscious emulation of life's genius. Tell us a little bit more about what does that mean? That's right. There's there's no better way to phrase it uh, than how she did in her book in 1997. And actually, it's it's what's driven a lot of us uh, into the field. Uh, it is uh, just looking at, well, imagine, if you will, a uh, area being in drought, maybe a, a state by the ocean. Uh, and imagine if there was a way to mimic the strategy that a beetle uses for collecting water to bring more water to that area. Uh, that's been done with fabrics that were mimicked from the back of a Namibian beetle. Uh, they have uh, water-loving material on points on their back, and then in between the points, there's a material that does not like water, so that when there's enough of a bead of water that gathers on the top, it rolls down into these cracks on their back and rolls right into their uh, mouths. And so they have now formulated materials that have made it a lot easier for particularly uh, women in Chile and Tibet to be able to not have to walk the two miles down to their water source, but be able to collect it from the fog right there, you know, close to their house. Tell us a little bit more about some of these applications. I've seen some things about building cooling systems and uh, bullet trains. The Shinkansen train in uh, Japan is what you're referring to. And it was interesting because they had uh, the challenge of there were sonic booms that were happening because the trains were entering tunnels at such high speeds. And so they were, they were looking for a way to... Um, the neighbors weren't liking that. And so they were looking for a way to solve that problem. And so the um, the inventor 
really was a, a bird watcher too. And he noticed the way when a kingfisher entered the water, it created no wake. And so um, it, it, he deployed that genius onto the nose of a train. And not only did they illuminate the sonic booms, they got 30% better fuel efficiency. And that's, that's really not unusual to find multiple uh, solutions within a solution or multiple benefits going on. So is the practice just observing, kind of waiting for a solution to come along as you're sitting out in nature, looking at how things are working? Is there more tools and exercises that are used to kind of extrapolate those patterns? You can really go about it two ways. Um, uh, People like Da Vinci were, you know, looking at birds and and inspired by them and, you know, coming up with inventions a long, long time ago. And people still uh, look at nature and become inspired and sort of take that design process spiral toward the ultimate invention that they come up with. The other way, and the way that's more comfortable for me because it feels sort of more straight line, is boiling down a human challenge uh, to the very most basic levels. Um, for instance, the classic is, is you, you don't toast bread. What you really do is you crisp and heat bread. So when you boil it down to that very basic thing, then you can say, how would nature do that? and then start looking for the models that are out there. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of reframing of the problems and that it's more than, than, than just looking for innovative solutions, but it's creating a whole new way of thinking and bringing the observer much more into the process. You know, it's interesting when my students uh, come into class, whether I'm teaching at a nature center or a university, the first thing we do uh, is dump them out in the woods or the prairie or whatever ecosystem we're, we're close to. It, it was the way I was trained, and although it seemed kind of strange at the time, when you take people out there and say, just look around you, you know, Pick an organism and really look at what's going on with it. How is the wind affecting it? You know, is it affecting the wind, uh, you know, as a windbreak or something? How is it interfacing with the world around it? And then we start challenging students to look at gradients from light to dark, dry to wet. Um, and, And so it's really getting a better feel for how we're interacting with the world around us and how other organisms are doing it. Because, of course, they've had millions of years of R&D. And sort of uh, the reason they're here is because they were the best at what they do. I did a seminar recently on biomimicry, and we had to sit in a nature site. But before even taking any notes or observations, we just had to sit there mm-hmm. for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it was extremely meditative. How do you think that mindfulness component or meditative component plays into this whole process? Well, it's interesting. It scares most people. I mean, we are so attuned to getting up, checking our tweets, you know, checking our email, moving forward. We've got, you know, five meetings today, you know, and we move at such a rapid pace that simply stopping and observing can at first be very unsettling. 
but it's interesting to note that and you probably noted within your group it doesn't take very many trips out into because usually in in what you're describing is an eyesight um so you'll go out and you'll sit for an amount of time and come back and talk about you know what did you observe it gets a little more comfortable the second time the third time with my students and i have an array of students from business people to farmers to miners um it's a very broad group of people that i work with by the third time they they can't wait to get back out there and so the the affinity with our natural world comes back to us quickly if we let it what do you think the impacts are going to be within scientific communities? Uh, you know, right now things are so profit-driven. Is this going to help kind of change the culture? Well, I mean, economy is always going to be, you know, a, a driver of, of our culture. And it's it's the basis for many cultures. But I I hope that that mindfulness that you talk about and a sense of compassion within our our science community and our business community uh, comes into play. And I have talked to many business people. I'm working on a book right now um, who are are unapologetically you know profit motivated. But the fabulous thing is that by using the tool of biomimicry, that profit. Uh, motive and ecological care can go hand in hand. And in fact, they have to, because if we don't take care of our natural resources, then we no longer have those geniuses to consult. And I've started to notice even I, my background's in electrical engineering, nanotechnology, and at first I wasn't seeing the connections between, you know, sitting in nature and looking at trees and birds and rivers and eco-streams to smaller, tiny, electro-nano world. But then it started opening up that there's connections and patterns that exist through all of these spheres, spheres of understanding and knowledge. What do you think is sort of the next frontier for putting biomimicry in a scientific scale? You know, to this point, we have pretty much uh, emulated structures, natural structures. But you can also emulate natural processes and, in fact, entire systems. So, for instance, you being in electrical engineering uh, would love to look at the company Regen. They have looked at uh, the swarming algorithms around bees and created a little device that's, you know, as big as a man's hand that they can apply to heating and cooling systems in large buildings like theaters and whatnot. And during the peak use hours of energy, where you would usually see a, pie, a spike, those little units help the heating and cooling units coordinate their fans so you completely knock the top off that. It's like getting a free month of electricity when you look at your annual bill. So um, it really works. So if you're just tuning in now, we're talking to Margot Farnsworth as a in conjunction with the Conference of World Affairs, a special edition of How on Earth Today on biomimicry, looking at a new lens for looking at science, technology, and innovation. So, Margot, are these methodologies being taught in schools? 
They actually are. Um, I worked for uh, Lipscomb University before I took leave for working on the book. And Lipscomb is one of several affiliate universities with the Biomimicry Institute. The first here in the U.S. was Arizona State. And now they have a master's degree in biomimicry. Um, but affiliate universities aren't the only ones that are teaching it. We're fi- we have a whole raft of fellows. At one point, I was one of nine, uh, but now we've got 20-something and, and a lot more people that are learning you know, as much as the fellows, really, and deploying it in schools of design, schools of engineering. Um, I taught in an institute for sustainability uh, and even schools of business now. Do you think that it can also be applied to for younger kids in elementary and secondary schools? Absolutely. We have uh, a lot of K-12 teachers. And uh, I tell you, those the kids' ideas, you know, not being fettered by, you know, everything that we become fettered with as we get, get older, come up with really creative solutions. So we're, we're getting them early. And tell us more about the Biomimicry Institute and some of the challenges and fellows programs that have... The the Biomimicry Institute is actually, when Janine wrote the book, um, she started this entity. And now there are two, Biomimicry 3.8, that actually contracts with companies. And then there are a lot of us out here that will also contract with companies. But you can just, you know, go to the web and go to 3.8, Biomimicry 3.8, and get right to uh, a for-profit you know, company that will work with your company to deploy biomimicry. Then there's a nonprofit side that is all about education and getting tools like Ask Nature out into the public. And Ask Nature is an online tool where you can look if you let's say your problem is um, that you want to increase the strength of a structure or you want to keep something dry there's actually a taxonomy that you can use and just click and it will take you down to the organisms that do that thing so it's it's a really really handy tool so they they keep working with us as fellows and using that internal knowledge, you know, that, that they've trained uh, to move forward. And at the same time, uh, growing into now there's a global network. So in any given week, I might work with someone from Switzerland or South Africa. Um, and so it's a really, it's a worldwide, wonderful uh, group. And you've led some graduate groups in some of these biomimicry challenges. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about some of those? Sure. Uh, the, the first student group that I had uh, were from West Tennessee, and he was really troubled by seeing family farms go by the wayside and looking at all of the silos that were now abandoned and not being used for anything. And so he uh, put into place a, a hydroponic garden system uh, by mimicking the way a hickory tree pulls up water from the earth um, to model for his watering system. And he was, uh, he was in the top 15 in, in the world. And then my second student actually reached out to me from the UK. And he was looking at uh, 
designing. He was a landscape architect. He is a landscape architect and working on an industrial park. And he wanted to look at a way to manage water uh, when there was too much and too little. And so he actually mimicked three uh, in, and I've sort of I'm interested in systems and we have a system where you take organisms from perhaps completely different ecosystems and look at how they can operate together. So he uh, emulated the elephant foot plant to collect water, the European water vole for collecting, storing, and distributing water, and the mechanism that a giraffe uses to get water from a lake all the way up that long neck to be able to distribute um, to other parts of the industrial complex to store for later use. Um, so used to those three in combination. So are there larger organizations, institutions, or even corporate companies that are really adopting these frameworks? I've met some people through the EPA that seem to be involved yeah, Marie Zanowick locally is an, an outstanding resource, and uh, she and I were actually down in Costa Rica together, and um, she's had experience not only in the the product aspect that we were talking about, but actually working with cities to think biomimetically and use the genius of place, the genius of an entire ecosystem to help cities operate more efficiently. So how did you find your way to biomimicry? <laughs> I, I, I got a hold of the book somehow, and uh, I thought, oh, well, surely I'm the last one to the table on this. You know, this is so great. I, you know, surely everyone is doing this. And so I went to my director and I said, I, I'd like to know who the other professors are that are, are using biomimicry so that I can talk to them so I'm not duplicating their efforts in my classes, uh, but augmenting them. And he said, no, no one's using it. Do you know of anywhere where you can get training? And about seven weeks later, I was in the middle of the jungle in Costa Rica. And so that's it, it was a fast ride, uh, but it's been nothing but joy ever since. I've heard you call yourself a hunter-gatherer. What does that mean? Well, you referred to some of my background, and, and in one of the panels yesterday, uh, you know, they talk about my, my biomimicry background or my park ranger background, but you know, I was also a, a law enforcement officer and, as you mentioned, a teacher, and sort of you know, every step I've taken has led me to another step in my career that was not a straight-line path. So that's... Uh, for those students who may be listening, you know, it, it can work. So you're on a few more panels for the Conference of World Affairs. What are some things coming up that you're excited about? Today, uh, we're going to be talking about science ethics, uh, means or end. Uh, and uh, we'll be talking about compassion in that panel, uh, among other things. Uh, and then later on, Common Core, see uh, you in 20 years, and uh, a, a panel on how we are going to preserve what's remaining in terms of our natural spaces and the wild. So I guess I already asked you a little bit about what fields could be applied to biomimicry, but what do you think is is coming next? Well, you know, it's great that you asked that question because really biomimicry works best when 
multiple partners come together. So typically, uh, as a biologist, I'll work with someone from the design realm and someone like you from the engineering realm. Uh, but now uh, we are starting to blend in the business, the business crowd as well to get those sort of those early applications and, and integrate this into business settings in a more seamless manner. Excellent. It, it takes a village. <laughs> well, thank you, Margot. Thanks for joining us. That was Margot Farnsworth, writer, consultant, and fellow at the Biomimicry Institute. Find out more about biomimicry at biomimicry.org and other events in the Conference of World Affairs, which will be happening all this week at CU Boulder for free at their website, colorado.edu slash CWA. Thanks, Kendra. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer this quarter is Susan Moran. This week's show is produced, engineered, and hosted by yours truly, Kendra Kruger. And our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you could subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger. Thank you.